Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. As we begin tonight's study, I want to just give you a little heads up. As we pick up here in chapter 42, and we're actually going to take chapter 42 and 43 tonight, we we begin one of the first of the four servant songs that are here uh, in the book of Isaiah. And as we mentioned, chapter 40 begins what the Hebrew scholars would call the book of consolation. And it corresponds really with this picture of God's grace and how he deals with us as his children, um, not by our iniquities, but rather by his character, his grace, his mercy, his gentleness, meekness, kindness, these things that we would see in a New Testament way as a work of the Spirit. But as we pick up here, Last week we saw in chapter 41, there in verse 8, that Israel itself was called a servant of God. And now God is going to speak through the prophet Isaiah about another servant, a greater servant. The servant whom the Jewish people would come to know as Messiah and whom we know as none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And so as we pick up here in verse 1 in chapter 42, would you join me and we'll pray And we'll pick up here in verse 1. Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you that you sent your Son to serve us. In fact, you, Jesus, picked up this theme yourself when you said through Mark, writing in his gospel, that the Son of Man came not into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, to those who would believe. And so help us to hear your voice through the words of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, as he spoke some 2,700 years ago, these words are still true because they were inspired by you, Holy Spirit, as Isaiah wrote. Bless our time in your word tonight, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus will actually repeat these words himself by the time we get to Matthew's gospel. But as Isaiah unfolds this chapter, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice, interestingly enough, to the Gentiles. Now who is Isaiah actually writing to? He's writing to the Jewish people in captivity in the city of Jerusalem who are about to go in captivity into Babylon. And Isaiah says, my servant whom my soul delights. Anybody remember that there might be somebody else who said those very words found in Matthew's gospel in chapter 17? And those are actually the words that God himself speaks when Jesus is baptized and what happens when Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Amen? 
So it's pretty easy to see the connection. Again, remind yourself, we have four full and several other incomplete copies of the book of Isaiah contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so here is a prophecy, if you will, of the baptism of Jesus, or at least what happens at the baptism of Jesus, because the voice of God from heaven says exactly this, this is my beloved son, hear him. That word beloved there is exactly the same as the word delights. This is my son in whom I delight. And then the spirit descending upon him, just exactly as it says here in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, my spirit would be upon him. The spirit didn't need to go into Jesus because Jesus was God. The spirit descended upon him. Remember, Jesus was fully God, fully man, and his flesh was going to be tested. And so the spirit was upon Jesus himself in that way. As you look at this passage, Isaiah is now going to give us some of the things that are the characteristics of the one who will be the servant of the Most High God. And the first thing that we see is meekness, and meekness should never be confused with weakness. Sometimes people confuse those two words. Meekness is not weakness. Weakness is just general inability due to one's capacity. But meekness is exactly the opposite of that. It is actually power that is under control. That's the simplest way to define it. At the time that Messiah comes, Israel would be a bruised reed for sure. And notice what he says. Verse 2, he will not cry out, nor will he raise his voice. How, How much ruckus did Jesus make about himself when he was accused, and falsely so, in the courtyard of Pilate? He answered not a word in his own defense. He didn't cry out from the cross in pain. You can see that these things are clearly pointing forward uh, to the Messiah himself, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Jesus didn't wander around with the voice of God. You know, we kind of all have that that anthropomorphic understanding of the voice of God. What would God sound like if he spoke? Hello, this is God. You know, it'd be something, you know, just thundering and... I am the Lord Most High. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't wander through Jerusalem looking at all the people going, don't you know I'm God? He was meek. He coupled that with humility. He put off his own Godhead. He was fully God, but he didn't exercise that while he was on earth. He didn't wander around with you know, a shining raiment of glory around him. He he didn't go about, you know, he, he walked where he went. Jesus had dirt between his toes. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. But he will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands or the islands or or the world shall wait for his law. Remember that Jesus quietly gave up his life for us. When he died on the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He didn't say anything like, I can't believe they're doing this to me. He didn't really even object, if you want to look at it that way, at least in the sense of on the cross. He said, I'm surrendering my spirit. 
And so Jesus right now, according to the book of Hebrews, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, even though he was meek while he was here. When he got back to heaven, he retained the fullness of his glory. And he sits there in his glory even now. And one day he's coming back in that glory. The Bible says when he comes, he will come with great glory. Not Greg glory. Great glory. Things are close, so make sure you have that right. Though Greg will come with them too. I expect Greg will be with right there in the front, probably with the rest of the really good people. I'll be in the back somewhere. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2 says, God has put all things in subjection under him. But as yet we do not see all things in subjection to him. Hebrews 2 verses 8 and 9 says, Boy, is that not the truth in our world today. Jesus is king. He still has the authority of the king. He has the power of the king. He could at any moment return to this earth and establish his kingdom in an instant. But he has yet to really receive that kingdom. He paid the price for the kingdom. Paid the price for your life. And so your Bible is really speaking to us in this moment of time. And he's saying God has promised one day for Jesus to come back in glory and splendor to establish justice in the earth. Right now, what is the world struggling for? What is America struggling for? It's struggling to find a place of justice for all peoples in varying degrees. People are looking for justice amongst many other things, but very much so right now, people are looking for justice. In communities of color, looking for justice. Police officers, falsely accused, looking for justice. People of all kinds of persuasions are looking for their just cause to be heard and acted on. Jesus is one day going to take care of the injustice that's in this world. That's one of the promises of the coming, the coming prince, the servant that one day is going to come again. Verse 5, for thus says God the Lord. Now I want you to look at what this really means. First, he names who he is as God. And then just in case you didn't get it, you'll notice in your Bible that Lord is in all caps. In other words, my name is Yahweh. This is Almighty God. Thus says Almighty God. And then just in case you don't know who he is, who created the heavens and stretched them out. You know, we really didn't figure out that the heavens were being stretched out until the last 45, 50 years or so. That the universe is actually ever expanding. We, we now understand that the heavens are continually being stretched out. And yet here the prophet Isaiah, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit inspires him, 
realizes that the heavens that you see when you look up in the night sky are not a static thing. The ancients believed, and in fact, many up until about the 15th century or so, believed that the heavens didn't extend very far beyond the surface of the earth. And in fact, the things that you saw as stars might be nothing more than pinpricks in the fabric of what lies above us. We now understand the massive scope of what God created, who spread forth the earth. Interesting that we now know that the surface of the earth is also being spread forth, continuing to expand. Did you know that the earth increases in diameter every single year, just a tiny little bit? The continents, through continental drift and shifting, spreading apart, in some places colliding one with another, creating mountain ranges. And again, God did a vast majority of this work at creation, but what your Bible says is continuing. God is describing who he is. He's giving us little secrets, and now here in our generation, we get to look at these things. You know what? Hmm, how did Isaiah know that? Well, because thus says the Lord God who created, that word bara there is so important, it means from nothing, it didn't exist before, in Latin that's ex nihilo, from nothing, God took nothing and made something, he created the heavens and stretched them out and the earth and spread it forth which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. That is a condensed creation account. That's God saying, just in case you don't know who I am and what I've done and why I might have the authority to send back my son, the servant, the Messiah, let me give you his qualifications. And so many people today don't give God his due. We have people on this earth, billions of them, who believe they're nothing more than random chance processes that happened in a single place and ended up being them. God created you. You are not the product of chance. Amen? That, that's why, by the way, every single last person sitting here has a completely unique DNA that begins at the moment of conception. The recombination of your parents' DNA together makes a whole new you. There isn't anyone else like you. There will never be anyone else like you. You are you alone. And God gave you breath. God's saying who he is. We also didn't know that until the 1950s. Think on these things for a second. These are truths. God's just saying, look, I gave you breath. I give a spirit to those people who walk on it. You know, Daniel, as he wrote in chapter 5 of his book, uh, was sitting there with Belshazzar, whose grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had robbed the temple in Jerusalem. And so he got this brilliant idea, Belshazzar did, that he'd bring out the temple implements and begin to have a party with them in Daniel chapter 5. God didn't like that. And so God responded to that, defiling 
of the things that belonged in the temple of Jerusalem, the things that were to honor him. And all of a sudden, you remember what happened? The finger of the hand of God appeared and wrote on the wall, eeny, miny, mo." No, eeny, tekel, you farsen. Eeny, meeny, tekel, you farsen. It's like you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And then we find out that tonight your life will be required of you. Well, Belshazzar was not old enough for that to really be a possibility. And he lived in a cloistered environment being king. Daniel goes on, when your father was really nothing, God raised him up and gave him this great kingdom of Babylon. And when he exalted his heart against God, God allowed him madness and he lived like an animal until seven seasons had passed and then God restored the kingdom and his sanity to him. But this God, you have not glorified and the God in whose very hand your breath is is, is the one that's requiring your breath of you tonight. There is a God in heaven who is the creator of absolutely everything who put your breath in your lungs and the moment he decides to not have breath in your lungs, uh, you're going to be dead. For it is appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment. The Bible's very clear on these things. But so often, man tries to act independently of God. We in this country have virtually thrown God out of every institution and in every corner of our being. We've kicked him out of the public square. We've kicked him out of schools. We've kicked him out of our daily lives. And it's a mistake because God still is exactly who he says he is, and it is he who controls our breath. Amen? We might want to remember that. It's so important that we get back to that place of pondering how totally dependent we are on God. You know, I got up a couple of days ago and I was just, we were sitting there in our backyard. We have a, a little fountain back there and a whole bunch of plumerias that are, they've gotten huge. They're like, nine feet tall now, and the hummingbirds come, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the, the hummingbirds, and then the wild canaries come, and we have a, I don't know if you guys know this, we have a flock of parrots in Lomita. They're like, they're like flying all over the place. They're like, those parrots. And I'm watching all this stuff, and I'm saying, God, you're too good. You didn't need to send these beautiful hummingbirds into our backyard to entertain us this morning, but you did. You could have sent sparrows that are, you know, kind of just gray and boring. You, you sent canaries with their bright yellow chest and their chirping sounds. God created everything on the earth. And he's amazing at it. Amen? Give him the honor that's due. Because there's no explanation for those things evolutionarily. There shouldn't be any hummingbirds in the world. The amount of food that they have to consume to fly as they do exceeds 10 times their body weight. Can you imagine if you ate 10 times your body weight? For me, that would be close, check this out, to a ton of food every day. 
A ton. Why? So they can hover like a helicopter, which we didn't figure out how to do until really the 1950s again. He's God. That same God, verse 6, And I, the Lord, have called you to righteousness. Who? The servant. And I will hold your hand, and I will keep you, and give you as a covenant to the people. Do you remember what Jesus said at the communion table? This cup is the cup of the new covenant. Say it. Covenant. What was God doing? He was making good on the promise that Isaiah made. I'm giving you your very blood as a covenant to the people, to all who will believe, to those that will rest and trust in the finished work of the servant, the Messiah, Jesus. What did Jesus call himself at the beginning of John's gospel? He was a light unto the Gentiles. Amen. What does it say? As a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes. What did Jesus do? Open people's eyes who were literally blind, spiritually blind, morally blind, emotionally blind. He opened blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison. You know, one of the first things that Jesus did after he was crucified, according to Paul as he wrote to the, in, to the church in Ephesus, is he went and set the captives free. That's kind of weird. Seven hundred years apart, those books were written. The book that we call the letter to the church at Ephesus and Isaiah's prophecy. Those who sit in darkness and from the prison house. We're going to get to Luke 16 and we're going to see that prison house. There will be the rich man imprisoned and there will be Lazarus whom now is set free and in heaven. You see, the Apostle Paul himself was actually sent to the Gentiles. Isn't that weird? You ever thought about that? Paul was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was of himself, he said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And God, in his marvelous sense of humor, sends him where? To the Gentiles. Hmm, wonder why he did that. You think God may have known that the Jewish people would have had blindness in part until the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled? He certainly did. God doesn't waste time, effort, and energy. He knows exactly what he should do. And so the Apostle Paul, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, as God speaks of him there in Acts chapter 26, to be sent out to the Gentiles. You see, all of these things, the light to the Gentiles, the opener of the prison doors, the one who can cause people to no longer be blind, the one who is perfect in his righteousness, can only be one person. The reason these things are important to the Jewish person is they knew these things before Jesus came. This is who they should have been looking for. If you talk to a Hebrew scholar, they will all tell you this is a messianic chapter. 
Yep, speaks of Messiah. Well, that's odd. Because the Apostle Paul was sent as a light to the Gentiles. Jesus set the captives free, opened the blind eyes. He went and pulled people out of prison. He gave a covenant with his own blood. You see, when you think on these things, you start to go, man, the Lord is good, amen? He's been speaking to people for millennia. You know, sometimes we think like the church is some new thing. Now, God's been sending the same message into the world since day one. That's the message that Noah got too, isn't it? Look, the whole world's in sin. You need to repent of that sin. And oh, by the way, you need to go into the ark and be covered. You ever wondered why the choice of words is used there in describing what happened to the ark after it's built? It was covered. It's the exact same word as atonement. In other words, inside of the ark, its covering was atonement. And if you were inside, you were atoned for. Your sins were paid. Only eight people chose that. As I read this, I I just sit there and go, man, God has no rivals. Notice what he says, verse 8. I am the Lord. And again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And just in case you didn't get it, he, he says the same name that I spoke to Moses, I am that I am, That I am that I am is the L-O-R-D, Yahweh. So who is this that's speaking? It's the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator. This is Yahweh himself. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. In the New Testament, that phrase, I am, ego ime, it's a a self-determined reality. It doesn't have a cause. It exists because it is. When God says, I am, that's because he isn't created. He's the uncaused cause of everything else. And interestingly enough, no thing that's created can be greater than that which caused it. By definition, in our particular spatial universe, that which creates something else is defined by being greater than that which it creates. God's saying that. He's saying, I am, I'm uncaused, and my name is God. He's giving us the history, if you will, of who he is. So these things I've told my people. Now it's true that he also goes by some titles, one of which in the New Testament, kurios, it simply means uh, master. It's a a title. That's, That's also important. He is the master. But he's also the Lord. He is Adonai in the Old Testament. But his name is Yahweh. I am Yahweh. My name is Lord God. He's making sure everybody knows who he is. There should be no confusion 
about who is sending his servant. Now, this is odd. You can't send somebody and then go yourself, amen? But he says the servant also will be God. So if the servant is God, then the servant also has to be God. And he's sent by God. That means that God exists in at least two persons, doesn't it? Notice also that the Spirit is going to be set upon him, also identified as God. So this is another one of those places where you can see the triunity of God's nature, that he is three in one. Would you notice something for me? And I will tell you, please don't be offended at what I'm going to say, but I would prefer that you do not call me the most holy right reverend Pastor Jeff, okay? And this passage is why, amongst many others, only God is holy. Only God deserves reverence. I am a man. My pants go on one leg at a time because I cannot jump high enough to do them both at the same time. God could easily put my pants on me by himself without me moving. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. No one. He's unwilling to do that. And so these appellative things, most holy, reverend, those are names that I believe should be reserved for God. I understand there are some people in some cultures and some denominations that use those things for their pastor. And while I'm not trying to say that you know it's some definite wrong, I think it's a trap. I really do. Because people are incapable of being what God is. And so those things that are true about God, I'm not sure we should assign to men ever. And frankly, there are a lot of people on this earth that try and draw attention to themselves. That's why Jesus, there in Matthew chapter 5, says, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Amen? Not you. Look, it, it's a privilege, an immense privilege, to be able to stand before you and share God's word and pastor this incredible church and be a part of what God's doing here. But the glory belongs to God. Amen? Always and forever. Always, church. Always. In me dwells no good things. Doesn't mean I can't do good things. Doesn't mean you can't do good things. Doesn't mean that we can't do the will of the Lord. We can. But any glory for what is done on this earth belongs to the Lord himself. It's by him, for him, and through him that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? Important we understand that. Otherwise, we might be tempted to take the glory of the Lord, and God will not give his glory to anyone else, not to another. Notice some things that only this servant will be able to do. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Uh, can any of you do that with the Dodgers? I like to know which games to watch so I don't get an upset stomach. 
You see what I'm saying? We, we can't, can we? We can't tell what's going to happen before it happens. Not with 100% accuracy. God's saying, look, I can do a few things. This servant will be able to do a few things that you as mere humans can't do. And one of them is to prophesy of things that happen before they happen. The former things I'm declaring to you. Why don't you see if you can pull that off? You won't be able to. A lot of people have tried. It doesn't end well. Read Deuteronomy 18 if you want to see what they do to false prophets. It's not a good thing. Sing to the Lord. Again, all caps. That's sing to Yahweh a new song. And his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that's in it, you coastlands and the inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and all of its cities lift their voice, the villages of Kedar that inhabit it, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. He's basically defining this whole region of the world. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory and praise in the coastlands. And the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. She'll stir up his zeal like a man of war. He will cry out, yes, shout aloud, and he will prevail against his enemies. You know when that happened? To Telestai. It's finished. The serpent's head was crushed. Oh, yeah, the serpent was able to bruise Jesus. That's why he's on the cross. But the serpent's head got crushed at the cross. prevailed against his enemies. You see, the enemy tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, didn't he? The enemy tried to have Jesus killed when John the Baptist was arrested. The, the enemy tried to have Jesus beaten to death in Pilate's courtyard. The enemy was constantly after Jesus, but only Jesus prevailed. It's only the Messiah that will do this. Verse 14, but I've held my peace for a long time. I've been still and restrained myself, and now I'll cry like a woman in labor. I'll pant and gasp at once. How patient God has been for thousands of years. You ever wondered why Jesus didn't come back today? This is your answer. He's still holding his peace. He continues to hold this peace. He, he pours out grace and mercy on this wretched world. But I, I want to tell you, God's not going to delay forever. He's not. And without trying to establish a date, I can tell you this. We are much nearer the return of the Lord than we have ever been. The rapture of the church than we have ever been. I sit here and look at the world. I, I was listening to a little bit of the, the run-up to the debate, which is probably still going on right now. And I'm like, I'm shocked. I'm just like, Lord, you need to save us because we're going to destroy ourselves. We're not going to need to be invaded by a foreign army. We're going to disintegrate right before our own eyes. If we don't get a handle on what's going on in our country. 
God is being patient. He's being kind. He's not willing that any should perish. He desires that all should come to repentance. He is waiting patiently for the work of the light of the world to be accomplished. But he's not going to strive forever. We can't legislate godlessness. We can't serve mammon forever. God has his limits. And we'll see that as we continue through these servant songs. I will lay waste to the mountains and the hills. I'll dry up all their vegetation. Hmm. Kind of already happened. I'll make the rivers and coastlands and I will dry up the pools. Kind of already happened. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. Kind of already happened. I'll lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. That's what you call evil being called good. Kind of already happened. You see why this is important? Because the servant's already come once, but he's coming again. So there was a past fulfillment. There's still a future fulfillment of this. And so as the world dries up, as we see these things which are surely going on, and crooked places straight. <laughs> Seems like every place right now is a crooked place, amen? It's like every time you turn on the news, it's some new scandal. These things I will do for them, I will not forsake them. In other words, the Lord is going to come back and square these things away. There's going to be desolation before the rebuilding. Sometimes people say to me, well, you know, we can, you know, we can square it away. No, I'm not sure. I think the Bible's pretty clear that it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. And when it gets better, it's going to be because Jesus came again. Now, I hope that doesn't bum anybody out. I hope it makes you busy about your father's business, that we don't have unlimited time to preach the gospel. We don't have unlimited time to reach people who are lost. The time is drawing to the close. And so God commissions us. God is going to deal with Israel and their issues. Basically saying, look, can you fight the armies of the earth by yourself? Can you suffer with the inhabitants of the earth endlessly that cause chaos? Can you fix all the injustice and inequity in this world? No, we can't. We've been trying. And rightly we should try. We absolutely should continue to try. But the fact of the matter is, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And until hearts are changed, the world's going to be the same, and it'll just get worse. That's what the Bible says. Now, it may not get all worse at once. We've gone through times of relative peace. But you realize, in the last three and a half thousand years... There has never been a time of more than 90 years on the entire earth where there wasn't a war. Do you hear what I just said? In three and a half thousand years, there hasn't been a time on earth more than 90 years where there wasn't an active war someplace on the face of the earth. As far as history tells us. So I think God knows what he's saying. Jeremiah's time, the nation of Israel becomes so corrupt that God had to pull it down. 
They were almost completely wiped out by Assyria. Then they were taken captive by Babylon. And then they came back and they basically were never anything ever again. They were scattered all over the face of the earth. But, verse 17, they shall be turned back. They'll be greatly ashamed. Those who trust in carved images. You see, what happened when the children of Israel came back into the land, instead of serving God, now imagine this, they preserved, they were preserved. They survived the Assyrians. They survived 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They come back and they still haven't learned their lesson. Now, I hope there's nobody here who's had that type of behavioral issues with God. But that's never a good thing for God to have delivered you from the hand of the Assyrians and the hand of the Babylonians and for you to turn right back around and continue any longer, as Paul said, in sin. That's why the Bible's so clear about the life of the believer. While we on this earth will never, ever, ever, ever make it all the way to being exactingly perfect, we are supposed to not be sinless in that sense, though we could be, but we are supposed to sin a whole lot less. Amen? We're supposed to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. Who say to the molded image, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Who's he referring to there? Israel. Or deaf is my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as he who is perfect? Blind is Israel, the Lord's servant, in other words. Israel was blind to the things of God. The nation wasn't seeing what they needed to see. They didn't recognize him. That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 actually quotes, Well did Isaiah the prophet testify to you, saying, Having eyes to see, you will not see. Having ears to hear, you will not hear. That was the issue. They were still trusting molded images, carved gods. And I believe that America has much the same problem today. Jesus spoke of that blindness. Verse 20, seeing many things, but you do not observe. Opening ears, but you do not hear. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake, for he will exalt the law and make it honorable, but his people will be robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes. They're hidden in prison houses. Anybody remember exactly what went on throughout the Jewish people's history, including up until the 1930s and 40s when they were murdered, holed up in houses and robbed? Every single thing they possessed, stolen by the Nazis? For they are prey and no one delivers. For plunder and no one says restore. No one has really come to the Jewish people's defense until very, very recently. Which, by the way, is exactly what Ezekiel 37 predicts. As Ezekiel the prophet gives this incredible prophecy of Israel being a, a skeleton, dry bones, that's put back together that gains sinew. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for a time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? God says, look, this is, I did this. I punished them. 
They wanted to trust in idols. It's not good. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. Amen. If he doesn't chasten you, he doesn't love you. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that these things went on. They had more understanding. They should have had more holiness. They didn't. He against whom we have sinned. Who's the we? That would be the Jewish people, the children of Israel. For they would not walk in his ways, and they were not obedient to his law. And therefore, he has poured on them the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. He set them on fire all around, and he did not know, and it burned them. Yet, he did not take it to heart. They said, look, we're we're not, God didn't do this. This isn't the Lord. All you have to do is read the prophecies of Isaiah and they'd find out, no, that was God's hand. God used the Assyrians. God used the Babylonians. God used the Romans. God used the Greeks. God used the Persians. God even used the Nazis. He used them. He didn't ordain them to do evil. He simply knew their hearts. He allowed those things to happen. He said, that's what it's going to take. Chapter 43 continues. Remember the chapter and verse designations are not in the original text. And so Israel here is exhorted uh, to to be dealt with these issues. It's like, look, this is going to happen in great measure when the tribulation comes, but you guys need to get this. God's still going to restore them. He's going to gather them together. And so first part of this story and then the second part of the story, and I believe we can catch this as it is, Jacob called Israel, notice verse 1 of chapter 43, but now thus says the Lord who created you. So he goes back to who he is. O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. So he says, look, it's not going to go good, but fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I love this. It's like, look, I want you to know this is going to happen, but here's what I'm going to do when it does. I'm going to step into your time domain. I'm going to begin to work in your life in a way that you can't even imagine right now. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place, since you were precious in my sight. Now he's, he's telling them, look, you're a mess. Things are not going to go good but I will take care of what needs to be taken care of. I will give the whole world to get you back. Notice what he says. You've been honored. You've been loved. And therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I'll bring your descendants from the east. I'll gather from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This is a perfect picture of the regathering of the Jewish people back into their own land. The diaspora happened. 
They were scattered to the four corners of the earth, the north, south, east, and west, the ordinal points on a compass. I know the world's a globe, so it doesn't directly apply, but just imagine any direction you can go, God's going to gather them back. Wherever they went, where did they go? All over the world. Strangely enough, you travel to Ethiopia, you know what you'll find in central Ethiopia? Jewish settlements, Hebrew writing. Matter of fact, there are some that believe the Ark of the Covenant is actually stored in Ethiopia. Not true. God's gathering them from Russia, from Africa, from Europe, from here in the U.S., here in L.A., New York, returning to their land that was given to them by that covenant made with Abraham. There's been a relaxing of the, of the governments of the world on the immigration laws for the Jewish people, allowing them to return. Uh, in essence, to be honest, they're trying to get rid of them. It's like, fine, go back to your country. And God's saying, it's more than fine, it's my plan. I'm bringing the Jewish people back where I, where I originally called them to. And everyone who is called by my name, whom I've created, verse 7, for my glory, I have formed him, I have made him. Two unique words. These are not the same as created. Created, the Hebrew word bara, here asa, is, is used. And it, and it means to take that which was created from nothing and to form it into something else. God made dirt and then made man out of dirt. Amen? So he created dirt and then made man out of dirt. God's really good. So they're exhorted not to fear. It's like, look, I've got, a pro I've got a plan for all of this. Don't fear. I want you to be my witness on this earth. And so Israel had no reason to fear. This, this word that's used for redeemer is, is the goel. It's to buy out of slavery. It's the picture of the near kinsman. This is this whole wonderful story that's in the book of Ruth. Here, this near kinsman is going to come. Jesus was a near kinsman to the Jewish people. He would redeem them back. He would pay the price for their sin. Even though they'd been scattered in the Exodus, they were lost in Egypt. Even though they'd been scattered to the four corners of the earth, they're now being gathered back. He's basically saying, look, I paid the ransom price already. It's going to be okay. Israel didn't need to fear. Israel didn't need to fear because God loved them, still loves them. He's going to deliver them. He says, he says to them, don't be afraid. This whole thing speaks forward a little bit in time because there is one final time when Messiah is going to come specifically to speak to the Jewish people, and it is still yet coming. Though he's gathering the Jewish people now into a nation that we now authorized to be called the Jewish state as a world. We go, yeah, the Jewish state, that's Israel. But as far as God's concerned, they're his people, his chosen people. And the land that they're in is actually his land, by the way. The book of Joel says that very plainly there in chapter 3. And so God created them, he has formed them, he's made them, he's gathered them, and he has a plan for them.
Notice verse 8. To bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears, let all the nations be gathered together and assembled. And who among them can declare this? Who can show us these former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say this is truth. Well, nobody can do that. Nobody on this earth has an explanation for why the Jewish people exist at all. No people group ever, as far as history records, has been pushed out of their own land, denied the ability to speak their own language, to maintain their culture for 2,000 years and managed to survive, not only as a people, but to have that language survive. The Jewish people did that. I believe that is completely miraculous, by the way. Winston Churchill said the same thing. He said, if you want any evidence for God, look no further than the Jewish people. The fact that they're still alive. The fact that they're back in the land. So strange is that. It's interesting because young Israelis, a lot of them don't speak Hebrew. They're actually having to go to school to learn how to speak Hebrew. Why? Because they came from New York. They came from L.A. They came from Ethiopia. They speak Russian fluently. They just don't speak Hebrew. They speak English. Serbian, Croatian, Polish, German, but they don't speak Hebrew. So gather, gathering back together, one of the things that they have to do is learn how to speak Hebrew again. It's unparalleled in human history. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen. Why? That you may know and believe me and that I am he. Before me was no God formed. The uncaused cause of everything else is God. Nor will there be after me, for even I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. Amen? These are all New Testament truths. Uh, we're not in the Old Testament, church. There's no other Savior save him. Who? The servant of Yahweh, God's son. Israel is a witness to the world, to that truth. Before anything existed, there was God. He makes that very plain here. It's a beautiful truth. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me any God formed, is basically what he's saying. Now, I don't know what the Mormons do with that. Because part of their theology is you can become a God. And you can have your own planet. They claim to believe that the Bible is actually inspired. And yet the Bible plainly says there's exactly one and it ain't you. I have declared, verse 12, I have saved, I've proclaimed. There was no foreign God among you. 
And therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. And indeed, before the day was, I am he. In other words, again, he reminds us, I'm the uncaused cause. I was there before everything was because I made it out of nothing. I formed it after I made it. Here's how we see that. There was no one who can deliver out of my hand. If God puts his hand to it, you're not winning that battle. I work, who will reverse it? God is totally sovereign. He is completely able. He's Jewish people's only savior and he's our only savior. For thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I will send Babylon. And so now he brings it back into the present tense. He says, Babylon's coming. I'll bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships, for I am the Lord, your Holy One. But you've burdened me with your sins. You're a mess. You've wearied me with your iniquities, those things in your heart. Sins are external, iniquities are internal. It's the easiest way to understand it. Sins are things that you do, iniquities are things that are inside, the things that are in your heart. Wrong thoughts that turn into wrong actions. Even I am he who blots out your transgressions. That's the things that are active in your life in the moment for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Notice what he says. He says, for your sake, you've wearied me with these things. You've burdened me down. But I am he who blots them out for my own sake. So when you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself, lest you can boast, the New Testament says that. The Old Testament also says it. I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to remove them. I'm going to take away the stain, the iniquity. I'm going to take away the active sin itself. And God says, I will not remember your sins. Don't you love that, church? Those of you that are struggling with your, your place in God's kingdom, God doesn't remember your sins. He can. He certainly has knowledge of all things. He can't forget anything, but he chooses to bury them in the depths of the sea. He hides them behind his back. He will not ever look at them. They've been paid for because of Messiah, because of Jesus. So put me in remembrance. Let us contend together and state your case that you shall be acquitted. Your first father sinned. Who is that? That's Adam. Your first father sinned. And your mediators have transgressed against me. Basically from Adam to Abraham, all the way down through all of the kings and all of the priests, all the way down through Annas and Caiaphas to Messiah, every last one of them. And therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. In other words, you're going to go into a time of trouble, a time of travesty, but I will redeem you if you will remember me. Beautiful picture of God's gracious plan for the Jewish people and a beautiful picture of our salvation in Christ. Abraham was a sinner, amen? Didn't you ladies just study Sarah? Was she like the perfect princess? No. Was Abraham like the holy man? No. How about all the apostles? No. Aren't you glad that God remembers not your transgressions because you've been redeemed and purchased 
by his own blood? Yes, God allows for things to go sideways in our lives. He allowed and used the Babylonians and their captivity to chasten the children of Israel, but he still has a plan, and the 12th chapter of the book of Zechariah tells of that plan that he will pour out one day on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, when they look on me whom they have pierced. They'll mourn for him as one who mourns for his firstborn son. Jesus was the firstborn son, and he was pierced. And as one who grieves for the firstborn, one day they're going to see exactly what God has done to redeem them. We've already seen it. We've already believed in his name. It's the reason we're called the children of God. We're, we're not Israelites, but we are saved. We are redeemed. The price has been paid and God isn't remembering your sins. So make sure you walk in that grace and walk in that peace this week. Let him wash over you and take your cares. He's big enough. He created everything. He can handle what you can give him if you'll give it to him. Amen? Amen. We made it. Would you stand? <laughs> Two whole chapters. A lot to cover, but you can see there's a context there that's continuous through those two chapters. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your blessings. Lord, your forgiveness that you don't remember our sins, that you've blotted them out. And now, though our sins, as Isaiah already said, though our sins be as scarlet, You've made them white as wool. We're clean, Lord. Not because of us, but because of what you, the servant, the Jewish people's Messiah, our Savior Jesus, did on Calvary's cross. Your blood poured out for our transgressions has washed us. We look forward to that day when the Jewish people in mass turn to you, Jesus. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that you'd save those who right now are crying out to you in their homes or they realize that there's no temple on the temple mountain. They're wondering what to do. God, would you send your Holy Spirit, send your witnesses to speak to them. Lord, speak to the Palestinian people and the Arab peoples that surround them. Lord, would you cause those who desire to know you to hear that message of the gospel of grace. Thank you, Lord, for your word for its power to instruct and inform and to change. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.